Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Phil Bellinger and Cup of Coffee is brought to you by At Home because we're at coronavirus at the moment. I'm having a long black. What are you having, Phil? Uh, I've just got a cappuccino. I just whipped that up on the um, Jura machine at home. Oh, you got your own little, like, blending machine? Yeah, so I've got a, um, a Jura F90, so, yeah, you can throw your beans in there, um, grinds those for you, and, yeah, pours out some pretty nice-tasting coffee. Do where do you get your beans from? Somewhere local or...? Um, yeah, just get them online. So um, earlier this year... Um, had a bit of time off and, and took a holiday over South America and um, went to a coffee shop um, just south of, of Rio and, um, yeah, um, liked them so much and they um, produce their own beans. So, yeah, we, we ship them in, which is pretty cool. Whoa, that's – um, holy shit, that's like far away to get your coffee. That's good. Yeah, yeah, but um, apart from that, I'm not I'm a coffee snob or anything. But, yeah. Um, yeah, do, do enjoy good coffee. I've just got the plunge. Just the, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. It's better than. I think it's time to upgrade. It's I'm up, I've upgraded from the uh, the instant <laughs> from the instant, but I need to um, yeah, either get one of those little like Italian espresso ones for the stove, or like, uh, yeah. or like yeah. a machine. I think I might be getting one for when I move down south. But um, yeah, that's pretty much been my progression. Started with the uh, Macona, and then went to the plunger, and then had the Italian press, and then yeah, now I've got the uh, the actual coffee Bar- machine. Barista. Barista. Yeah, so it's hard to go back down that, um, that <laughs> hierarchy. So once you um, go up to the next level, there's no turning back. That's very good. I like that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bit of a novice. I'm an apprentice at the moment, let's just say that. <laughs> so first of all, Phil, what's your area of research? Yeah, I guess um, in a broad sense, I'm interested in uh, all things about um, elite athletic performance, so just finding ways that athletes can train more efficiently and improve their performance and then uh, also some aspects around athlete recovery as well. And then I guess specifically within that sort of framework, I'm interested in uh, a couple of things. So um, probably the topic I did my PhD on, which is around uh, nutritional uh, ergogenic aids and how you can try and find a a 1% to 2% performance improvement through through a nutritional supplement. And then secondly, I guess it's just around uh, better understanding the, the training process. So the athletes need to train really hard and, and I'm pretty interested in some of the nuances of how you can monitor fatigue and, and prevent, um, I guess, excessive uh, overreaching or, or pushing towards overtraining in athletes. And then um, also around how you can distribute the training intensity um, and how you can get the... Uh, I guess, most efficient results from, uh, I guess, really carefully programming in intensity to a training program for athletes. And so with the overtraining aspect, you have to do, like when people, I know that people in gym backgrounds and stuff, oh, I don't want to overtrain my muscle for it to grow and things like that. Um, and obviously you have the background of like physiology knowledge, but overtraining, that's a lot of training, hey? Like that's like a... Yeah, yeah. so you, you typically don't see 
overtraining in athletes uh, very often. Mm. Um, probably what um, what uh, those anecdotal reports are referring to there is um, someone that might you know go to the gym on a Monday and then they're feeling sore the next day and then um, they might you know still go um, go ahead with that particular session while their muscles are still a little bit sore, whereas um, overtraining is more of a, a chronic uh, fatigue-type syndrome, which, um, one, you don't see very frequently, particularly in um, sort of team sport or strength-based athletes, but typically more so in endurance athletes. Um, uh, and that's when they obviously have very, very high training loads. Um, they might be uh, not prioritising recovery, um, or deload weeks, but um, yeah, you typically don't see overtraining. What you do see a bit more commonly is a concept known as overreaching, which is more of a short-term decrement in performance, which isn't necessarily uh, bad for an athlete. They obviously need to try and harm it. But um, if other contextual factors around recovery and nutrition aren't prioritised in periods of overreaching, then that can also lead to maladaptation to performance. And so you've been you've been in the presence of some pretty fit guys and girls um, over your time in research. What um what would you say is the difference between? Obviously, they have I would say they have the time and commitment to train, but people can still train that volume and not Im- not improve to that to that level. What's the difference between you know people on the podium and people on the esplanade? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and um, I think everyone's probably got a scope within their own physiological or individual profile for which they can improve. And um, there's really, uh, if you take a group of individuals and give them the same training program, you typically will not see very homogenous responses to that training program, even when you control for factors outside of, of training. And uh, a lot of it just comes down to individual traits. So we think that uh, your genetics and, and your phenotype is pretty important, although the research is a bit mixed on trying to specifically identify which individual uh, genes or a combination of genes are important for training responses. And then other individual factors, so things like your your muscle fiber type composition may be important as well for some of those individual training responses. But yeah, it's it's likely that just the uh, term that I use a bit is trainability uh, in those top level athletes is uh, much greater, so they've got bigger room for improvement and also just due to natural genetic endowment um, at baseline. They might have things like larger heart size, larger oxygen carrying capacity. They might have more efficient muscle fibres and things like that. So they've certainly got a a um, higher baseline and, and also potentially um, a greater trainability to a few of those different factors. Um, and I guess everyone would have their own individual scope. So if it was me or you, we might be somewhat closely matched and you compare us to someone that might make an Olympic team in a given sport, then they're probably starting at a higher baseline due to that genetic endowment and individual traits, and they may also have a higher degree of trainability within a given trait as well. That's awesome. It's good to it's good to know. Cause did you think that you'd like when you watch yourself out there and you compete with these, or not compete, but when you compare yourself to these athletes, 
do you, can do you? Well, you would have the evidence to show that like that shit. That's these guys are pretty fast. They're pretty strong. Like you would, like they're not the freaks isn't the right word, but they're you know they're talented. They have ability. Like it's cool yeah. cool to see that. It's really awesome. Um, yeah, I mean we, we often see that through the um, talent ID testing from a young age. So when you have 10, 11, 12-year-olds, uh, even when they're matched for uh, their level of maturation, some of them can jump higher, sprint faster or have better endurance even before they're exposed to these chronic exercise training programs where they can specify. So, yeah, there's certainly, uh, certainly uh, some individuals that are born with the potential to make national and, and international teams, but then um, at the same time, um, the coin, you've also um, got to have the mental capacity to be disciplined enough to train hard over many years. But, um, yeah, there's certainly some that have been blessed with some uh, better sporting genes than others. And you mentioned at the start, you said you were interested, I guess, in, in fatigue and in more probably those endurance athletes and things like that. What I've, like, what I, even what I know from my friends who do training and stuff, like, they don't want to, well, I personally, I don't want to not train. And, like, I, I feel as though that deload week or the, you know, having a proper plan of increasing intensity or volume or um, is quite hard to stick to because you just want to train. How important are those periods of, like, off training or not training in, in terms of holding on to your, like, ability to perform on the day? Like, do you lose that fitness over time? That quickly? Yes, yeah, so I think there's probably a couple concepts there. One, um, I think for consistent performance, consistent training is pretty key, but that's certainly not training hard all the time. And what you find with a lot of athletes is they don't like deloading or doing taper weeks because they probably have a sense that they might or a belief that they might lose fitness in that time, but that's certainly not the case. Um, and then secondly, athletes probably train too hard on the days that they should be training light or having a recovery session. And then on the days that they should be training hard, they might not have um, recovered enough from the training day prior to be able to give it all they can on a given session so for a, a middle distance runner for example typically a saturday morning session might be on the track um and then the friday session might be a light 30 to 60 minute job but um yeah they might have trained too hard on the friday because they uh, think that they wouldn't get enough out of that recovery session and then they uh, rock up to the next session which um, in theory might be a, a hard track session so some repeat 400s and they might not have uh they might have gone too hard on the day before. Um, and then I guess taking a step back and looking at sort of the week-to-week variation, um, there's certain parts in a training calendar where athletes need to train consistently with a, a high mileage, for example, like in a bit of a base phase. Um, so they won't be sort of the intensity won't be too high. It's just about, I guess, um, just about undertaking sessions with consistent mileage and getting some training volume in there. But then once you actually get into the competitive season and doing more intense workouts um, and you might be leading up to a race, that's when you certainly need to look at backing off a a period of anywhere between three and ten days for a tape period, for example. And, yeah, I certainly think athletes um, find it hard to commit to those periods. But then also, as I mentioned before, looking at 
individual training sessions, they find it quite difficult just to make the easy sessions easy. Mm. Great answer. Could you please talk us through your research pathway from the beginning until now? Yeah, sure. So like most uh, sports science academics, I did an undergraduate degree in exercise science, and that was at um, the University of Tasmania, where I grew up and did my schooling down there. And then straight after that undergraduate degree, I did a honours degree. And what sort of got me into research was um, a course that we did in the last uh, semester of the undergraduate degree. It was a research project course and uh, that's designed to give undergraduate students uh, some exposure to research. And um, for that particular course, I linked up with a project that a PhD student was doing at the time uh, by the name of Dr. Maddie Driller. And he's an expat, so he's in New Zealand. Uh, he's from New Zealand and he came to his PhD at University of Tasmania in conjunction with the TAS Institute of Sport and with their rowing program. So I helped him out with one of his PhD projects and um, and that sort of got me a taste of what research was about and, um, you know, was getting exposure to working with some pretty top-level athletes, which I quite enjoyed, and then that sort of got me onto the path pathway of research. And then for my honours project, uh, we did a, a project with trained cyclists where we looked at... Um, implementing some sprint interval training. So that's very intense work intervals and dispersed with some uh, low-intensity recovery periods. And it's a really potent training stimulus. And then for the Honours Project, we looked at trying to enhance some of the performance adaptations that you get from that type of training. So we had um, two groups of cyclists doing this form of training and we gave one group... um, a supplement to take, so beta alanine, which is uh, you take that to increase your levels of muscle carnosine, which is a buffer. So we thought that that might be a, a pretty good mix, increasing your buffering capacity and increasing your training intensity. And um, and that project was really cool. We got some really good outcomes from that. And then I was pretty much set on the pathway to do a PhD. So it took a bit of time off, and then I uh, was presenting some of that honors work at a conference. Um, the uh, ESSA Research to Practice Conference and then at that conference met a, um, an academic um, who was at Griffith at the time, um, Dr Mike Leverett, and um, got chatting with him about it and um, was pretty keen to do a PhD with him at Griffith. And at the same time, my own supervisor had also um, interviewed for a job up at Griffith, so I had my two supervisors sorted and... and put in a PhD application for a scholarship and the offer came through and was pretty keen to accept that. But then at the same time, um, Mike Leverett took a job at UQ, so he left and then um, my honours supervisor decided to stay in Tassie. So then I was sort of left without a supervisor at the time and then Mike said to give uh, Claire Minahan a call and um, I had to accept the, the offer pretty soon, so I had to make a call and then had a good chat with Claire on the phone. She said, yeah, definitely come up uh, for a PhD and then, yeah, moved up to Griffith from Tassie um, and, yeah, did the PhD over the three and a half years and um, and then after that still enjoyed the research and was fortunate enough to get a, a two-year postdoc, so a full-time research position at Griffith 
and then that came to an end uh, at the end of 2019, so last year, and then was fortunate enough to stay on at Griffith and I uh, got a lecturing position. So, yeah, that perhaps takes us up to um, us talking now. So, yeah, sort of been bouncing around universities for about 10 to 12 years, so undergraduate through a PhD and then now, yeah, working as, a, working as an academic. And do you see yourself staying in this area of work or in this position as... You know, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I'm probably I quite enjoy uh, doing the research, obviously, um, and the main reason I enjoy that is the area of research uh, that I'm involved in. So working with athletes and understanding a bit more about the training process and how we can train athletes a little bit more efficiently and effectively. So I guess if I didn't continue on at a university, I'd probably um, maybe look to work in sport. So maybe with one of the state-based institutes, um, like all the Olympic-based sports, then those athletes are pretty motivated and work really hard. So, yeah, if I didn't have an academic role, I'd probably be pursuing a, a role in sport, trying to support the coach and, and how effectively they're training their athletes. Awesome. I, could, I can see you on the, on the sideline with a whistle, Coach Phil. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm normally a, a pretty quiet guy in large groups, but... Um, yeah, anything where you can support the group. I guess you've got to have a pretty outgoing personality to work in sport. There's some pretty big personalities, and um, I guess you've got to show your worth as well. So, um, yeah, maybe it'll take me a little while to warm into it, but yeah, I'm sure I'd, be, um, I'd enjoy that role as well. And so, your PhD was involved in nutrition, you said at the start. So, is that was that beta alanine stuff as well, or was that different? Yeah, continued on with. Um, with the beta alanine work and um, we did a, a series of studies looking around what type of sports or what type of events um, supplementation with beta alanine may benefit and um, continued on working with cycling and then also delved into a little bit of the psychological side of supplements as well and, and um, looking at the placebo effect, so how an individual's belief around um, the ergogenic uh, potential of a supplement might influence uh, how they perform. And um, it's probably the most interesting or one of the more interesting studies I've done where we had some deception trials where we uh, told our cyclists that they were taking the supplement when they weren't and we actually gave them a placebo. We had another deception trial where we told them that um, they weren't taking the supplement that they were, so we told them we'll give them a placebo. We actually gave them supplement and um, it's really sort of delving into the belief effect and um, some of those results suggested that at least in some individuals, uh, simply the belief that they were taking a uh, supplement that may improve their performance was, I guess, strong enough to improve their performance. Um, and in those same individuals, um, when they believed they weren't taking the supplement, but they were, their performance didn't improve. So I think um, that extends to other areas of, of training and not just um, nutritional supplements where you've certainly got to get a level of trust with your athletes and um, I guess a level of surety that the intervention that you're prescribing them is going to work. So, um, yeah, that was a really interesting study and I know um, 
colleague of mine, Ben Desborough, sort of continued on with some of that work, and he looks at he looks at that in more of a um, you know with caffeine supplementation, and yeah, there's a whole heap of studies around the placebo effect and the belief effect around different interventions. So I think it's a really really cool area. Um, but yeah, then the PhD uh, research um, that sort of took me internationally as well and presented some of these findings at. Um, over in Europe at a big sports science congress and there's another um, I guess group that do a lot of beta alanine work and they're based at Belgium at Ghent University uh, so Professor Wim de Rave and, and I got chatting to them at a conference and um, the other interesting thing about carnosine I guess is that it's a apart from beta alanine supplementation it's a very stable metabolite in the muscle and it's found in much higher concentrations in type 2 muscle fibers compared to type 1 muscle fibers. And you can measure it non-invasively using MRI and a technique called spectroscopy. And um, through a lot of Wim's work, he's um, sort of shown that it's um, when you can measure carnosine non-invasively, it's a very good, uh, I guess, non-invasive or surrogate measure of muscle fiber type composition which we think is pretty important for talent identification and uh, I guess sports suitability for individuals and possibly also related to some of those responses to training. And um, But the only way you can measure fibre type until um, these non-invasive techniques have been developed is by um, a very painful muscle biopsy, which you know, um, which you may perform for me in coming weeks, who knows. Yeah. Um, but, um, and then that's sort of the area of research that I'm uh, moving into now where we've sort of got a really good collaboration with Wim who's sort of created this amazing technique and, and um, yeah, we're measuring the fibre-type composition of, of athletes here on the Gold Coast um, and trying to improve talent ID processes and also um, individualising training a little bit more as well. So, that, yeah, that was going to lead on to the next question. So what you're currently working on, so that's looking at the muscle fibre types of people through the muscle biopsy to, yeah, you, you got you finished that. <laughs> yeah, so we did, a, we did a big, um, I guess, comparison study between this non-invasive technique where you measure carnosine through the MRI scan and comparing that to uh, the gold standard technique where you take a muscle biopsy, so that's extracting muscle uh, from an individual and um, you've got to analyse a sample in the lab and it's quite time consuming, uh, it's quite invasive and athletes don't really like giving up any of their muscle despite it being a very small uh, portion. And um, yeah, we managed to get a biopsy sample out of about 80 individuals here and, and that's sort of built on some of the work that was done. Um, so one of his PhD students at the time um, Audrey Bagway, she um, sort of published a or the first validation study, and that was in 12 participants. So we're really just building on some of that work and making sure that our scanning technique is comparable to theirs and, and a few other sort of optimization aspects of it. And, and yeah, we've already started sort of applying that in a project with swimming um, where we're looking at whether fibre-type composition has a major influence over the events that swimmers might specialise in. I've done some work with the middle distance runners around pacing and how they might best um, attack their racing from a, and whether that could be related to their fibre composition and some of their training responses as well. And then 
we've also done some of this work with um, with uh, the local uh, NRL team here, so the Gold Coast Titans, where we've scanned some of their players and looking at how that relates to their sprint performance. So, yeah, plenty of work in this um, in that sort of space over the last couple of years, which has been really cool. So, hoping to get some of those results out soon. And so, so what's next on the horizon? So, do you, as as a researcher, and I'm, I'm learning this now, you, you still you still have to look into the future a, a little bit, um, but not hugely. So, what do you what are you keen to look at next? Yeah, well, I guess just sort of continuing on with some of those studies. So, uh, we found some really good results with the training study with the middle distance runners, and um, we'd probably like to extend that into other sports. So PhD student um, of mine and Claire's out of Mallet, who's uh, the assistant coach with the TSS swim squad, which is one of the top squads on the Gold Coast, is performing a similar training study with those athletes. And we'd probably also like to apply it in training model with uh, more power and, and sprint-based athletes, so possibly uh, with some of the team sport athletes and some of the um, contact team sports, either AFL or, or rugby league. Um, and then also um, some of the Olympic-based sports, so you know, with the jump athletes and sprinters as well, I think there'd be some um, pretty good scope for performing some of the studies with those athletes as well. Awesome. But obviously things are on hold at the moment, as people who are listening now know what the time is like in on Earth with corona and things. Uh, so is your, I guess, even your muscle biopsy stopped, has that s- stuff stopped at the moment in terms of analysis? Like is, is the lab shut? Yeah, it is actually. We um, we finished the data collection for that study and then all the muscle samples are stored in the freezer at the moment, but we can't get access to them and run the analysis, unfortunately. But um, I guess that also just reinforces that um, although the biopsy um, analysis is the gold standard, it does have its limitations because we've obviously done the um, MRI and the spectro work on the muscles of these individuals and um, we've got our estimates of fibre composition, but we can't compare yet because we've got our samples stored in the in a minus eighty freezer. So hopefully, um, in the not too distant future, we can get in the lab and analyse those, and um, hopefully we can get some further confirmation and validation of the, the non-invasive technique. And well, having those in the freezer for now, I guess you know, say if, if you weren't to. Um, look at those in until six months' time. Would it much would much change in terms of what you would report on? Uh, no, so they're they're um they're frozen away in the, in the minus eighty. So um, yeah, there won't be anything uh, any metabolism going on in those muscle samples at all. So they could be in there for a, a pretty long period of time before um, anything might affect the analysis that we'd run on them. So. I guess it's just a matter of time of getting back in there and we're just pretty keen to see the results in general. Only two more questions to go, Phil. I'd like you to tell us one about your one of your favourite papers of yours and then something that you've really enjoyed reading in the past that you'd like to share with others as well. Yeah, I guess um, probably out of uh, my projects, uh, the last PhD project that I did, um, so this was a... I guess a further extension uh, from the honours project where we're looking at um, teaming or the looking at the combined effects of sprint interval training and taking a supplement. 
And um, with this particular project, we were doing some work with some uh, track cyclists and we were looking at, um, I guess, more effective ways that those individuals can perform some of their interval-based training sessions. And we came up with a individualised sprint interval training protocol um, that was based on some of the physiological measures we could, we could quantify in the lab. And we got some really good results uh, from that training protocol. And I know that um, some of those athletes are still using that training protocol um, a couple of years on from that. So I guess that's the main thing that you want to do with your research. You want to be able to inform practice. So um, the fact that some athletes are still getting benefits out of being involved in, in that particular study um, is really good to hear and reinforces that some of the work you're doing is having a bit of an em- impact. So I guess personally... That's, um, yeah, a, a really favourite sort of study of mine. And then, yeah, I guess some of the other studies I'm sort of interested in that other researchers have done, um, probably really liking some of the um, work that a uh, colleague of mine's done, Maddie Bourne. So he's also doing some pretty applied work uh, looking at uh, injury risk factors um, and in particular looking at um, some muscle architectural uh, factors that might be related to um, the incidence of injury. And one um, variable that he looks at quite a bit is muscle fascicle length, so essentially the number of uh, sarcomeres in series. And you can, um, well, it's quite malleable to training. So if you do eccentric training, so muscle lengthening training, you can increase the length of these fascicles. And um, what some of his research has shown is that really short fascicles um, and also uh, low levels of eccentric uh, knee flexor strength is related to the likelihood of you uh, getting injured, so in particular hamstring strain. So I think um, there's probably two things that are interesting with athletes and that's either reducing injury risk or improving performance. So I guess I'm more so interested in improving performance and some of Maddie's work is more so looking at um, understanding injury risk a little bit more so. So, yeah, really enjoying some of his research at the moment too. That's awesome. And it's good to always uh, help out a colleague as well. And so Yeah, yeah, he'll love that plug as well. <laughs> yeah, and if anyone wants to listen to Matt Bourne, he's the first episode of the HDR Brews, so I can plug myself there as well so you can <laughs> have a listen there. Um, Very good. How was your coffee, Phil, out of 10? Yeah, quite enjoyed it. So I'd probably give that a 9 out of 10. Uh, yeah. I normally go uh, two shots in mine. And, um, yeah, the other day I was at the supermarket and um, I normally buy a bit of almond milk just because I have lots of coffees. So not that I don't drink full cream milk, but if I have that in every coffee, I just feel a little bit a bit full. Yeah. And anyway, um, I'm there in the long life milk section and everyone's panicked buying their long life milk. So all that was available was some um, reduced priced uh, barista milk. So yeah, I got some of that and um, I put that in the milk frother and yeah, it tasted really good. So that's why I gave it a high rating. Oh, nice. Barista milk. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what's the difference between, you know, milk and barista milk? That's a bit interesting. Well, yeah, the barista milk sort of um, got the capacity to froth up a little bit more and you can um, make a great cappuccino if you've got a milk frother or milk steamer. Bit of food science in there. There you go, which um, you know all about. Oh, bits and pieces. I've done one <laughs> one, one course. Um, I, thanks for your time today, Phil. I do really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Great to be on. And then, um, 
yeah, hopefully I'll um, chat to some of the other academics around Griffith and um, yeah, can hopefully get uh, some interesting uh, characters on for you. Yeah, definitely. I hope uh, Claire's keen to come on. She said she's swamped at the moment, so we'll just have to, to wait and see with that. I know she's a very busy lady, um, so we'll get her on and then it should be good. Move, Very good. Move, Thanks move, for having me on, Nate. Move my way through the department, I guess. So. 